Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart welcoming you back for another weekly market recap at the end of the week featuring as usual my good friend Lance Roberts. Hey Lance, how are you? Fine, how are you? Ready for Thanksgiving? Yeah, yeah, that's right. We got Thanksgiving coming up next week. Um, lots to be thankful for, Lance. And let me start with the ingratiating. I'm hugely grateful for you and uh, being willing to come on every single week with me on this weekly market recap. We started it right at the beginning of the year. And uh, lo and behold, here we are getting close to Thanksgiving. It's gone really well. I think feedback from folks has been really positive. Um, the views have been great. So anyways, I thank you for committing so much of your time uh, for this, given what a busy guy you are. It's no problem. I mean, your wife called me when you started this and, and said she'd pay me to be on here with you. So <laughs> worried nobody show up. So yeah, it's working out fine. That's great. Yeah, that's just like she ties a pork chop around my neck to get the dog to play with me. Yeah, I'm I'm very used to it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's all fine. No, I, all right, I well, look, um, so that's great. Lots as usual to dive into this week. Um, we went almost two hours last week and it still had a bunch of people saying we should go longer, but man, I want to try no. to not make it that long this time. Yeah, exactly. No. Speaking of our wives, I think they really want it to be a little bit shorter. Um, so uh, let's talk about uh, the market action this week, you know, from sort of beginning to end. Uh, the markets didn't really, you know, they, they, they closed near where they started the week. A um, little bit of a round trip. I'll let you um, get in the details of that. Um, let me just kick off your response with a comment that Alf Pecatiello made on today's interview with him, which is that um, he believes that, yes, the market could still rally from here for a bit. His bias is that the bear market is not over yet and we'll see a, a lower bottom in 2023. Um, but his point was, he's like, you know, when I see at this point, given everything going on, the S&P between 4,000, 4,100, he's like, to me, that feels like thin air. That feels like about as far as this thing is likely going to get, given what he sees around here. Uh, do you have a similar interpretation or a different one? Well, you know, so when, so we have to go back five weeks ago now. So, you know, we, five weeks ago, you and I were talking about markets were, you know, setting a new low, super bearish, you know, sentiment in terms of investors, super negative positioning by professionals. And we were talking five, six weeks ago, say, hey, look, this is the prime setup for a reflexive rally. And we said back then that our target was 4,400. And, you know, here we are. Right. And what's interesting is, is I just did Charles Payne uh, yesterday on Fox Business, and he asked me about bullish sentiment. He's like, you know, he says, uh, you know, retail investors, the AAII, the American Association of Individual Investors, their bullish sentiment's now up to 33, which is off that record, near record low we had it in the 20s for bullish sentiment. And he's like, well, you know, that means, you know, isn't that bullish? And I'm like, well, it's bullish, but it's also contrarian because everybody, nobody wanted to own stocks five weeks ago. Now everybody wants to buy. I mean, I'm getting getting calls at the office from clients going, "Is it time to get all the way back in?" Right. No, it's not. <laughs> um, but so here, here's a couple of things. There, there are a couple of things that bother me about the market right now um, in terms of sentiment and and what's going on. Right. There's too many people calling for a recession. That's problematic. Now, I think that we'll that you and I will see those recession calls die out first part of the year. Um, if the Atlanta Fed is even close to right, they're over 4% growth for the fourth quarter right now. So you just had a 2.6% print in quarter three, you had a 4% print in quarter four, at least at this point. So just assuming the Fed, the Atlanta Fed stays where they are now, you've had 2.6 and 4.0 you know, growth 
in the economy. Um, unemployment still is near record lows. Jobless claims really aren't picking up very strong. Continuing claims are still some of the lowest on record. So, you know, I think there's what I'm hoping for is that we get into the first part of next year and the mainstream media kind of starts going, see, there's no recession in sight. No, you know, everything's fine. False alarm. Uh, we dodged a bullet. Yeah, Exactly. Soft landing, you know, all that. And, and that's and that's typically what you want to see, because, you know, when everybody's looking for a recession, typically something else tends to happen. And, and that's an old Bob Farrell axiom, right? Uh, Bob Farrell, rule number nine, when all experts agree, something else tends to happen. Yeah. So, and so I think, you know, next year we'll see some of these recession calls come up a bit. Uh, you'll hear things like, oh, the inverted yield curve is wrong this time because of A, B, or C reasons. And, and we've, we've heard all those before. And then that's when potentially the recession will actually grab hold later next year. So the other problem that's going on is there's a lot of people, and again, not saying that I'm not saying anybody's wrong, right? I'm just, just saying there's a lot of calls for another leg lower in the markets. And, you know, that's possible. I'm not saying it's not possible at all. And I think it's something that you should pay attention to. The Fed is hiking rates. And, and, and this is what I talked about with Charles Payne yesterday. You know, the Fed is hiking rates. Um, a lot of those rates have not come through the economy yet. Earnings have not been revised down enough to reflect for slower economic growth. And they certainly haven't come down enough to reflect for a recession. Earnings declined more than 15% in 2012 and 13. And that was just a manufacturing recession. It wasn't even an official recession. And we haven't even brought earnings down enough to encapsulate a negative growth rate yet. I mean, we don't have a negative earnings recession built into estimates yet. So, you know, I think there's a lot of work to do on that side. And if earnings come down, then prices do have to come down. So you can't, you know, prices can't stay where they are and earnings come down because valuations go up. So prices have to come down with earnings. So, yeah, I think there's a real risk that we see a, another leg lower in the markets. You know, where that ultimate bottom is, that's debatable. We can come up with a whole variety of arguments for 3,000 to 3,300 to 36, um, you know, depending on how you want to evaluate things. But I do think there's risk next year. And I think we need, once we get through the end of this year, uh, I think this, this, this little rally we have right now has some legs through the end of the year with a bit of a breather um, sometime around the first two weeks of December. We can talk about why. Um, but then next year, I think we've got to go through a revaluation process. Okay, so let's let's talk about the potential bullish case here in the near term, um, and then we'll get a little bit more into the the what could go wrong side of things because um, you uh, wrote a piece uh, the other day called um, "Hard Landing Coming?" question mark um, and basically pointing out the disconnect between investor sentiment right now and the remaining risks that are out there. So we'll do a little bull, then we'll do a little bear. Um, real quick though, before we do the bull, um, is there anything notable about what sort of pushed prices around this week at all that it's worth noting? Um, well, no, I think it's a little bit of a, you know, we've had a very strong run. I shouldn't, that, that, actually, let me state, restate that. We, we've had a nice run. I wouldn't say it was really strong. We've had a nice run. Um, you know, we had, we had that a big super run. strong couple of days. Well, that was what I was going to say. So we had this really strong couple of days. Now, actually, this this kind of market action this week is is really kind of bullish. And and the reason is is we had this five and a half percent up day, and we had a follow through day. That was great. And then the markets got to four thousand, which was our first kind of target. And if you draw a trend channel 
on this little rally up in the market, we rallied right to the top of that trend channel, which is about 4,000 on, on the S&P 500. And we've kind of come off of that and we're holding the 100-day moving average. So, you know, and then just below that, the 20-day moving average is crossed above the 50-day moving average. That's bullish. That provides more support. There's a rising trend channel at the bottom that's running right along the 20-day moving average. That's additional support for the market. So this little bit of a pullback here is actually kind of healthy, um, consolidating some of those recent gains, distributing out some of that overbought condition that, that kind of got built up, and kind of giving the market some ability to, to have one more potential leg higher, which I think that could happen next week and the week after uh, because of, you know, the fact that basically the inmates will run the asylum for the next two weeks, all the, all the traders are all leaving for the Hamptons this weekend. So mm -hmm. uh, they will be taking their private jets to the Hamptons to be hanging out for Thanksgiving. Uh, and all the retail traders on Robinhood will be buying stocks. So, um, you know, that's going to be, you know, kind of the next two weeks. So I think that could lift markets a little bit. First two weeks of December. So September sucked. If you remember in, in the markets in September, it was really terrible, right? Markets just went down for the entire month. That was that point where you and I were talking about super negative sentiment, negative pessimism, good setup for a rally. We had 25% of mutual funds have their year-end uh, redemptions in September and, and early, and then uh, in early October. So you had a lot of selling that occurred by mutual funds there. November only has 5% of about mutual funds, you know, having their year-end. 20% of mutual funds have their year-end in December. So if you go look at a chart of months of December, what you'll generally see is a bit of a sell-off in the first two weeks of December. And that's all those mutual funds making their annual distributions. Then as they do all that selling to make those distributions, they've got to put that money back to work and get the portfolios rebalanced for the end of the year for their, their year-end uh, reporting. And that's why you get that traditional Santa Claus rally. So, uh, I, you know, what kind of my best guess, and again, this is just a guess, anything can happen, right? But kind of our, our plan of action, <laughs> uh, we sold some additional exposure right around 4,000 earlier this week, um, raised a little bit more cash, looking for this pullback in the first couple of weeks of December, maybe add a little bit of trading exposure into year end, and then reduce equity again going into the first of the year, because that's where I think we're going to start playing catch up with some of these rate hikes. So that's that's okay. the trading that's the trading plan at the moment. All right, all right. Um, so you you talked about um, you know the bullish potentially bullish impact and, and maybe it's slightly bearish and then bullish of you know them well, selling off their up. I mean, you gotta have yeah, yeah. yeah. But they're gonna they're basically gonna you know they're gonna window dress right. They're gonna they're gonna sell what didn't perform well. They're gonna they're gonna buy what performed well for the year to show everybody. Oh, we have it in our balance sheet right now, right? Um, and that's right. going to potentially, you know, raise some some share prices right there at the end. Um, and then in conjunction with that, um, we also have uh, buybacks back in play, right? Um, so yeah. that, in theory, should lift at least the companies that have the cash reserves uh, to be able to do buybacks, right? Right. Well, yeah, um, you know, Apple has bought back $584 billion worth of stuff. So yeah. <laughs> crazy. Half a trillion. Uh, Walmart just announced a twenty billion dollar buy, uh, buyback after their announcement last week. So, you know, look, the, the, you know, it's you may not like it, you may not love it, you may love, you may like it. I mean, you know, whatever it is. I mean, buybacks benefit shareholders, uh, insiders. That's how they liquidate their shares. Um, you know, but 
it, it provides a lot of net buying for the market. So it's just, you know, with that window now open through the end of the year, there's roughly $5 billion a day in buybacks that are going to support asset prices. So, you, and, and again, what th this isn't your small cap, mid cap companies. They don't have the capital to do this to any great degree. I mean, you don't hear about Trex announcing, you know, a, a you know, $50 billion stock buyback. They just don't right. have the capital for it. It's Apple, Microsoft, Walmart, Costco, you know, or whatever, right? It's, it's these big mega cap companies with a few hundred billion in, on their balance sheet. And they have the capital to buy back significant shares. And that's why I wrote that, that article we discussed last week, you know, are Fang stocks dead yet? Um, because there's, there's a lot of reasons why these big mega cap companies like Apple, Microsoft, and others, that's money. You may hate them. You may love them. I mean, you may hate Facebook, Meta, whatever you want to call them. But because of where they're anchored in the indexes and because they're in so many different ETFs, they're just going to keep getting money flow. And, and you've got to be aware of that. Yep. And that's back to our Bill Fleckenstein's giant mindless robot that as long as the capital inflows are positive and we have all these, you know, algorithmic ETF, uh, ETFs out there buying um, according to, you know, their their mathematical equations, it's it's just math. That That's the problem with this, right, is, is you're fighting math, right, yeah. with these guys. No matter how frustrated you get, the math is yeah. not on your side as long as the capital inflows are are positive and substantial. Um, I guess the only other thing to say on buybacks is that um, I, I imagine there are, is an increasing attrition of companies able to do buybacks because back in the salad days of you know January, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you could borrow at super cheap rates and buy back uh, retire shares that were costing you more um, than the debt is. But but now that debt has become so much more expensive, a lot of companies can't do that anymore, I imagine. Well, I, I no, yeah, absolutely. And I'm just kind of wondering what day, you know, when do we get to the day that Apple becomes private because they bought all their shares back? So, yeah. you, know, <laughs> you know, there is an end game to this. I just haven't figured out exactly, you know, where it is. It's probably not my lifetime, but uh, you know, there's going to be a problem, you know, down the road with share buybacks. And, you know, it's the least best use of capital for companies. Um, you know, and, and I love these arguments people put out about share buybacks. So like share buybacks, return of capital shareholders. A, no, it's not. Uh, we discussed that before. But B, it's a one-time use of capital, right? I buy back shares today. That that capital is now gone. I've used it and, and it's it goes away versus using that for, you know, doing a merger or an acquisition or expanding my production base or hiring employees or something that generates me long-term returns. In other words, investing that capital for future growth, I'm using it for these one-time benefits just to help boost my EPS. And, and that's a very poor use of capital long-term. And, and again, I, I think at some point this comes back to haunt companies. And we saw this during 2020, you know, Boeing is a good example, had, had spent five years of burning capital doing, uh, doing buybacks. And when they got into trouble, they had no capital and had to go run to the government for a bailout. So right. you know, this is this is the end game of all this. Although, you know, <laughs> I just put it this way, but like, were they wrong? Right. You know, they're like, mm -hmm. hey, we can enrich ourselves. And then when it all goes to hell, the government's going to bail us out here. I mean, that is the system as it's being played and gamed right now, which is super frustrating because it, it worked out for Boeing. Right. It tends to work out for like the airline industry. You know, they, they, they're famous for that. Remind me for our rant of the day um, to talk about stakeholder capitalism. OK. I'm writing it down right now. Yeah. 
Um, I have another topic, but we'll 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 make time or to just, squeeze it. Or at any point in the conversation today, we can talk about the the value of stakeholder capitalism. Okay, will do. And you know, what what also infuriates me about buybacks, and there's so many. We've already ranted about them in the past, so I'm not trying to get that that rant started back up. But the justification that management uses when it does the buyback, they say, is we can't find a better use of this capital than this investment here, right? Which and, tells and so, you the problem. Yeah. Well, well, so, but what that what that says is every company out there, except potentially one, is wrong in that statement. Because yeah. if buying Apple stock is the best investment, well, then every company should be buying stock in Apple with that extra money, yeah. right? I mean, right. so they're saying, I've looked at the whole world. I've looked at, like you said, Lance, all the other things we could do internally with this money. And the number one thing at the top of the list is we are going to buy back our own shares, right? And of course, we've talked about in the past how that hugely benefits the insiders and the top shareholders at the expense of everybody else, and oftentimes hollows out the balance sheet and yada 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 yada. Uh, so it's terrible, but it is it does make me, uh, you know, laugh with sort of a gallows humor that with all these people making that statement, by definition, they're all wrong unless one of them truly is making the right decision, and I even doubt that. Well, no, I mean, you know, to your point though, for them. It is the best use of cash, right? Because it just makes you know I've got I've got these shares inside the company, and I want to convert those to cash, so I sell them to the company. It's it's a great deal, and so it makes me wealthy. That is perfectly a, a best use of capital. Why on earth would I want to go hire employees? I got to put up with all their nonsense, and they want days off. I got to pay them benefits and all that crap, and you know go hire go buy another company. Really, now I got more work to do, and it's a long payoff. You know, it's kind of like we talked about the other day with ExxonMobil. Why won't they build a refinery? No incentive to do it, right? I mean, so, you know, the, the problem is, is that we've developed these very, and this is why buybacks were illegal until 1990, because it's a form of market manipulation. But, you know, it's a very perverse incentive uh, to, do, to do buybacks because it takes away, you know, the, and, and this is kind of FTX, right? We, we talked a little bit about FTX last week. And, you know, but what we've kind of moved to in, 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 in society is, is doing what's best for the insiders of the company rather than what's really best for the shareholders. Well, exactly. And, you know, this is, the, and, and again, it's this perverse incentive that was started under Bill Clinton when he tried, when he capped salaries uh, for executives and, and which spurred this whole development of stock options and everything else inside the company. But now we've, instead of giving incentive to the, the corporate executives to grow the business where they'll make more money, this is now the fastest way and the easiest way to become very wealthy inside of a company. Right. The, the incentive has more or less become what can you get away with um, versus what's in the best interests, right? So totally agree. I'm sure everybody watching is nodding. And, and folks, we could easily keep ranting on this, but we've done it before. And we've got other stuff to talk about this time around. So I'm going to have to pull the, inform the, the discussion right. back. Um, real quick before we move on to your piece, um, uh, you mentioned kind of in your recap for the week, you gave brief mention to um, what we saw from some of the retail companies. And it was interesting. We saw uh, really good results from folks like Walmart, right? Yep. And we saw really horrible results from folks like Target, yep. right? And um, I, I'm sure in there is, um, there's definitely things that we can take from, hey, is this supportive of recession or not? Um, I'm sure there's, you know, some management of the companies involved, um, 
management differences. But um, one way I heard it put recently that at least resonates with me is Walmart largely sells stuff you have to have. Um, and Target sells more, um, and some overlap, obviously, but more, you know, stuff that you don't absolutely have to have. <laughs> and so what we're seeing is 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 the the collapse of the Maslow's higher pyramid of hierarchy of needs, right? It's just the top of the pyramids coming off first, right? And and not that, you know, Target sells gold-plated, you know, toothbrushes and stuff. I mean, it sells stuff you need. <laughs> it's very practical, but it's not quite as essential as Walmart is. And so the thought is, is Walmart sales haven't fallen off yet because people just, they're going to do whatever they take it takes to just get the basics for for living. But even just one step up the, the food chain here, or, or one step up the non-essential chain, we're seeing serious erosion of demand. Yeah, um, you know, it, you know, everything is going to migrate down to the lowest common denominator for the household, which if you just took a look at recent um, credit card statistics, huge jump in credit card debt again this month. So, you know, it's just, you know, we're, we're continuing to see the consumer having to take on more debt. Uh, There's an interesting uh, stat out. Uh, don't quote me on the exact numbers. I'm in the ballpark. But if I'm off a little bit here, don't don't crucify me. But the New York Fed reported there's 555 million credit cards in the U.S. Now, what's interesting about that, there's only like 369 million people and counting every woman, man and child, baby, everybody else, which means there are more credit cards than we actually have the population, which right. that makes sense, right? Because everybody has a couple, right? You know, one, two, three, five, 10, 20. You know? But, you know, what we're seeing is, is, is more and more of these individuals taking out more credit card debt applying for more credit lines, opening up. But the banks are now going to start reaching the point to where they start kind of reaching saturations like, hey, Adam, I'm not going to give you more credit. You're kind of, you know, maxed out. So, you know, we're, you know, it's it's worth keeping a watch on what's happening with retail sales. And, and again, you got to be careful with these retail sales numbers when they come out. Like 1.3% was the retail sales number this past week. Two big problems with that number. One is Halloween. Right. So you had a, a bump for Halloween retail sales. Everybody's out buying candy and costumes and Adam was buying his Ninja Turtle outfit. Um, then you also had all the stimulus checks. Raphael. Um, in, in California, I was going to make a Spider-Man villain joke, but go ahead. <laughs> but in California, you had all these. Did you get your stimulus check in California, Adam? Yeah, somehow it missed my household, but it did. Uh, Damn it. I don't I don't know how that happens. But, <laughs> but so you had all these stimulus checks, which made up a very big, of course, everybody got these checks, they went out and spent it. So that all fed into retail sales. So you had this kind of abnormally big spike. But the important thing about the number was remember, always remember when you see these retail sales numbers, immediately the headlines are consumers are doing great. Retail sales up 1.3%. They're just buying all kinds of stuff. No. They're not buying more stuff. They're paying more for the same amount of stuff. Right. And that's inflation. And, and so you always got to remember this. And eventually that's going to feed through the system here. And so, you know, there's a real risk here. We could see pretty weak um, retail sales numbers for the end of the year. But, but Walmart versus Target. Um, I don't know if, if one, you know, Target tends to be a bit more of a woke company, kind of like Disney. And those, those companies have really been getting hit hard. Disney got creamed. Um, Walmart tends not to be. So, you know, I don't know if that was feeding into some of the, the, the difference differentials in their sales, 
But the important thing about what Walmart said is they had a huge pop on earnings. But the, what, what spurred that was their better than expected outlook. Yeah, I got to be a little careful with that. Their previous outlook was for a decline of 12% in sales. They revised that to only, to only a decline of 6% in sales. Mm-hmm. So, that, so they're still having less sales. It's just not as bad as they thought. And they got a 7% bump out of that. So, you know, it, it wasn't, you know, the earnings were better than expected. But again, you got to take that with a grain of salt because they're still not great. Right. We're still not talking about an acceleration in sales. We're not talking about stronger economic growth. We're still talking about declines in sales and earnings and outlook. It's just not as bad as expected. And, and rallying the markets on not as bad as expected isn't really what you want. Right. <laughs> that's not that's not the platform you want to be running on to get everybody running behind you. Yeah. You know, it's um, like the doctor says, hey, we're only going to have to amputate your leg from the knee down rather than the hip. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's good news, but yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's not net a net good development. Um, all right. So uh, again, we're, we're taking our time to get through this uh, discussion here because you keep raising such great points. Um, just as you're talking, I'm sort of reflecting back to previous generations in America, even, even before you're in my time, Lance. But, you know, we we all remember back when credit cards were very new um, and when you wanted something that you didn't have, you had to save for it, right? I mean, we had we had a, a national culture around, um, you know, savings, trying to live within our means, all that stuff, certainly nationally, but but also at the household level. And they were back, I mean, people, there's still people around here, maybe some watching, who remember, you know, the old layaway programs, oh, yeah. right? When you wanted something at a store, you'd go in and say, boy, I'd really like to get that you know, can I buy it? And they'd say, great, we have a layaway program. You make a you know contribution as you can. And then once you've made enough, you can walk out of here with this thing, right? Um, and but of course- leave, But you didn't get it until you paid for it. You didn't get it until you paid the full ticket price for it. Exactly. Um, and, and now, of course, you know, we have this whole, you know, leveraged economy and this, this mindset amongst the consumer of, hey, these credit cards are a great asset because they let me get what I want now. Right. And of course, you and I know the rapacious math behind, you know, the interest rates that these things charge. Um, and, and not only to your earlier point that now what we're seeing is times are getting tougher is that people aren't yet quite downshifting uh, their lifestyles, um, at least not not too substantially yet. But what they are doing is shifting way more of the how they're paying for it is, is on the plastic and on these revolving forms of credit. But there's also been this, you know, explosion in recent years of the buy now, pay later movement. Have you seen this? Like when you go to oh, yeah. Amazon or any you know online company, you're going to buy something. They're like, okay, well, look, this is the price and you can buy it and put it on your credit card now. <laughs> or you can use one of these buy now, pay later services. And you're just we're just going to charge you X amount for the next eight months or 18 months or whatever for this random thing that you probably really don't need now. But we, we just make it so easy for people to go into hawk here. And as a consumer we're kind of still holding on to the mindset that, hey, if I can get it, anything that helps me get it today is good, right? Not realizing that we're basically, you know, damning ourselves to a lifetime of debt servitude, trying to pay all this stuff back. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting. I I, I discuss this. So on our daily radio show, you know, that we do in the mornings, um, I went through a whole big rant a few months ago talking about these whole buy now pay, pay later because the, the, a lot of those a lot of those programs are now starting to come apart because guess what 
people can't afford to pay for yeah, it. They're totally know? unsustainable at the household level. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and that is like, surprise, that, that, how, how did anybody ever think that was going to be a problem? It's like all these micro loans and stuff that people invest in. It's like, oh, you can invest in micro loans and, and invest. You know, if somebody's coming to you and say, hey, can I borrow 50 bucks to go and, and pay my rent? I mean, why do you want to loan this guy money? If he can't pay his rent, how's he going to pay you back, right? Right, it, right. It, it, and let me just interrupt to introduce a concept that, that we can talk about later on at some point, because it does deserve a real exploration. But there's something called adverse selection, yeah. right? Which is a problem in business where you create a business model that attracts the exact wrong type of person that you want. And this is a total adverse selection model, which is let's take the least credit worthy people, right? And let's give them credit. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and again, not surprising, this isn't going to work out well. And, and you know, I was warning people back then, it's like, do not invest in these companies. It's, it's just, you know, leave those things alone because it's going to be a very bad outcome. But, you know, this was a point in time where, you know, lots of liquidity in the market. When you have too much money chasing too few assets, you get these, uh, uh, you know, these anomalous positions on companies, FTX, right? I mean, just you know, even hedge funds weren't doing due diligence. You know, they, these people that are supposed to be the smartest people in the room, BlackRock, Sequoia, you know, Tiger Global, these are supposed to be the smartest guys in the room, teams of people, you know, and they, they were doing very little investigation. They had, you know, we're not getting valid financials. The auditor that is now taking it over FTX is the guy that audited Enron, which was here in Houston. And so I'm very familiar with what happened with Enron um, you know, during the, the early the early 2000s. And he even said, this is worse than Enron. Well, well, actually, actually, what he said is it's the worst he's ever seen. Yeah, <laughs> which it's worse since Enron because that was the worst he ever seen, you know. But, it, but yeah, no, it, it's absolutely right. I mean, just the lack of controls and this. And, and how did, you know, the smartest guys in the room miss that. Well, they were greedy. They had all this. And this is the problem. We have all this liquidity coming in. These hedge funds have to get it placed. Right now, hedge funds and venture capital firms have over $500 billion of capital. They have to invest. If they don't invest it within a certain time frame, they have to give it back. Well, I don't want to give it back because I can't charge any fees on it. So how do I make money? I got to get it invested. So when you have you know, you know, environments where the a good example of this is, I don't know if you heard about this, the guy that was the CEO of Peloton, you know what he's doing now? Have you heard this story? No, I'm okay. guessing maybe he's like a barista. I mean, you're not too far away. So the CEO of Peloton has resigned from Peloton after a spectacular crash in, in, in that company. Of course, the overestimated demand, no kidding. There's only so many people that will buy a bike for a coat rack. And then there's a few people like Adam that'll buy it and actually use it. So, you know, there's a limited number that that's going to run out. You're going to run out of that number very quick. I used to be in the fitness business for a long time. And so, you know, the, the way a gym stays in business is you just keep selling memberships because people buy memberships and they don't use them. And they'll keep, and this is why you can't pay cash for a membership or write a check for, okay, for all you youngsters, back in the day, we wrote pieces of paper that were a check. <laughs> I know you haven't seen one of those before. It was actually funny because the guy asked me the other day, he says, can you write me a check? I was like, who has checks anymore? <laughs> so, but that's why gyms won't, the, the, the only way you can pay for a gym membership is pay for it on a credit card. Why? Because you, every gym knows, and when I built gyms, this is what we knew. I'm going to set you up on this automatic bill. Every month I'm going to bill you. You're going to come for the first month. I'm never going to see you again. 
Right. So I'm going to sell your membership to somebody else and you're still going to be paying. And it's a cash cow machine. It's a wonderful business if you can get them up and running because it just it just prints money. And, right. and it's just it's just built on human frailty. Exactly. <laughs> we just we commit and then we don't follow through. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And so then we're too lazy to go through our statements to unsubscribe. Yeah. Exactly right. So so that's a beautiful thing. Anyway, so the CEO Peloton raised 25 million. And this is my point back to my point about too much money chasing too few, too few assets. So here's a guy that just ran a company into the ground. OK, he then goes to the same VCs that funded him at Peloton and raised $25 million. Ask me what he's doing with $25 million. Selling rugs. He's selling rugs. He, he says, I'm gonna tap into the $1 billion industry of everybody needs a rug in their house. You need a rug to put under your Peloton, right? So he's now selling rugs in five different colors. And, and somebody gave him $25 million to, do it, yeah. to build a rug business. And I'm not saying the rug business is bad, right? I'm not saying not, but all I know is that every time I see a rug store, they've always got going out of business on the front and, you know, come in and buy our Oriental rugs, you know, hand-stitched Oriental rugs today for 50% off right. going out of business. That's the that. thing they I know about the rug they, they last. That, that's up forever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, but but this is my point is, is too much money chasing too few assets that leads to these perverse incentives of these hedge funds to not do due diligence and just saying, oh, yeah, that, that's a shiny car. It looks great. And they plowed money into FTX thinking that it was going to be the next greatest thing since sliced bread. And, you know, you, you pay the cost for that. But again, the, the lack of due diligence of what people are doing, that's what occurs when you start just throwing monetary policy money in the system. Market. Yeah. yeah. And this is why you and I tend to always kind of bring it back to the Federal Reserve, central banks, monetary policy plus bad fiscal policy, because that really does set the stage for almost all of this. Um, and your your good points there, Lance. Um, so I had a phenomenal interview with um, Jim Bianco earlier this week, really just deconstructing everything that we know to date about the FTX scandal. And folks, if you haven't watched it, you should go watch it after this one. I'll put up a link to it right here. Um, but what Dave was saying is specifically about the guys at Sequoia, who they are the top of the, the you know, Sand Hill Road, Silicon Valley VC community. These, these are the smartest guys in the room, uh, so to speak, you know, supposed to be. And he said, you know, here, here's the mentality is, is there's, to your point, there's, there's so much money sloshing around and so much easy money being made. They said, if you're a partner at Sequoia and you know, Sam Bankman-Fried comes in and says, hey, I want you to invest in my fast-growing crypto thing. And you say no. And then he's like three or six months later, because that's the time frame these things run, it's worth like three to five times more than it was when he walked in the door. He's like, you're very quickly an ex-partner at Sequoia yeah. Capital. And so really your incentive is to say yes to kind of anything that looks like it might do something. And he said, part of what this is sort of revealing is the tide is beginning to, to recede here near the whole Warren Buffett, you find out who's swimming naked. He says, it's really kind of revealing that this, um, this reverence for the smartest guys in the room in a lot of these VC or private equity you know, firms, what it's really just revealing is they had just had a spray and pray strategy. And they were like, look, we're going to make like 100 investments. We know that like 95 of them are all going to be duds, but five of them are going to make us ridiculously wealthy. Right. And so that's kind of the mentality there, which is they're just like they, they they're incented to say, sure, we'll fund you. 
Um, and to your point, you know, due diligence, yeah, we'll get somebody on that at some point in time. I know and it's just, and, but again, this is, but this is how frauds pop up. This is how Bernie Madoff popped up. You know, um, you know, when Bernie Madoff was at the peak of it, you know, he was just printing 12% returns. And we now know that those were all fictitious. And, and, you know, what got Bernie Madoff was in 2008, the market's down 50% and he printed a 12% return. He says, Hey, I made 12% my money. Mm-hmm. Right. Everybody's like, Hey, wait a second now, <laughs> because we know what you're invested in. And that doesn't seem right. That's and just then, math, not mathematically possible. Yeah. You know, and this and this is the thing that always fascinates me. So Alan Stanford was, you know, right there on the hills of Bernie Madoff. He's here. He was here in Houston. And what both these guys did wrong is they they had the opportunity, right? So what all Bernie Madoff had to do was in 2008 say, you know, he'd taken all this money fraudulently, billions of $50 billion he'd taken in. All he had to say was, is, man, I invested all that money into subprime mortgages. They all went to zero. I'm so sorry. I lost your money. Nobody would ever question. It, right. Right. And he would. But he got greedy and believed his own his own magic and said, oh, yeah, I can. I'm, I'm printing money. I can do this. And that's what caught, that's what caught Alan Stanford as well. Same thing. Uh, these kind of CDs that he was putting out. It's like, hey, wait a second. You can't do that in this environment. And. That's what eventually caught him. So, you know, this this is you know what we see happen over and over again. It was funny. I was when I was uh, on with Charles Payne just before me was Senator Warren Davidson talking about FTX, and he's like, "Yeah, one thing that we're working on is a bill because you know we need to align ourselves with the SEC so that they're catching these. You know, they should have caught this FTX fraud. You know, kind of in advance." And I laughed because. SEC has never caught anything in advance yeah. of any size. Now they go after a little, you'll hear them every now and it's like, oh, we caught this Ponzi scheme or this fraud and, you know, you know, wish wash Oklahoma, this $5 million investor. They go after individual invest, you know, advisors all the time, right? And they get those guys, these little small, you know, $10 million, $20 million deals. They miss regularly these $50 billion deals, they, they miss the Enrons, they miss, you know, the, the WorldComs, they miss, and I'm throwing out names, people are going, who the hell is he talking about? I know, <laughs> way back in the day, you have to go back to 1999, 2000, but Enron, WorldCom, Global Crossing, they missed all those. They missed Bernie Madoff, they missed Alan Stanford. Why? Because, you know, A, a lot of these firms were aligned with Goldman Sachs, Bear Stearns, and, and those guys have I hate to say it, but basically the SEC is not incented to go after the big guys because there's a revolving door between Wall Street and the SEC. So I don't want to go ping Goldman Sachs because I want to go work for Goldman Sachs right. when I when I leave my job. And so, you know, if you want to fix the regulatory or Mr. Davidson, if you watch this uh, this interview, um, if you really want to fix the problem, the first thing you have to do is you have to close the revolving door at the SEC. If you want to come work for the SEC, love to have you. You cannot go work for anybody else for 10 years after you leave the SEC. Right. right? Can I just expand that to all of Capitol Hill? Pretty much. Absolutely. But I mean, but this is the problem because this is where they go next, right? They all go to Wall Street. They all get on the boards of Goldman Sachs or, Citadel. You, know, you know, Citadel, whatever. And they get paid lavish funds. Look, when we were investigating high-speed trading, right? This is this was one of the big things in, in the high-speed trading investigation. We were having this big investigation. Where finally, man, everybody's excited. 
Finally, we're going to crack down on these high-speed traders. We're going to do this. Right in the middle of the investigation, the lady that was the lead investigator left and went to work for the high-speed trader they were investigating. So, I know. You know, isn't that, isn't that just, right there. Yeah, it, it's, it's rampant. And just to make folks' blood boil even more, with this whole FTX scandal, so who was uh, the SEC partnering with to determine how to regulate crypto firms with uh, that would crypto be, regulation that, policy? That would be Sam Bateman freed for two <laughs> exactly, exactly. So Gary Gensler was working very, very closely with Sam Bankman Fried on this. Um, and then, uh, so that's awful in and, and of itself. And they still didn't catch the fraud. They were working with him and didn't catch the fraud. That, that's what I'm saying. And then, and I, I don't know, you know, how much these people were talking at the time, but when you look at, at who ran the department at MIT that Gary Gensler uh, was in when he was a teacher at MIT talking about teaching about cryptos, by the way. But the, the head of that department, uh, forget his first name, last name Ellison. Well, his daughter is the CEO of Alameda Research, you know, which was what caused initially the the blow up at at uh, FTX. And of course, she had been dating Sam Bankman Fried somewhere in there. I mean, it's just it, it it could not have been more enmeshed. And yet, to your point, Lance, the SEC didn't catch whiff of any of it. Well, and again, and, and look, let's just be honest. They've never caught any any of these big fraud. They're, they're, they they do a good job of catching little guys because that's easy. Right, um, and it makes headlines. Yeah, you put Martha Stewart in jail and okay. Well, no, not, she was even big. I mean, I'm talking about the majority of the people we get are little small registered independent advisors just doing their job. You never hear them, you know, nab some guy at Goldman Sachs, right? That never happens until after the fact. And then when something blows up, well, now we've got to have all new regulations, right? So we've got to pass Sarbanes-Oxley to solve Enron. We got to pass Dodd-Frank to solve Bernie Madoff and the mortgage crisis. We got to do the Investment Act of 1940. You know, it's just after every single time that we have some type of major crisis, then we regulate it so that that never happens again. And then what Wall Street does is go, well, wait a second, here's a loophole. Let's go do this over right, here. Right. <laughs> you close that door. So let's just go look at all the other doors. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. totally. All right, so, look, yeah, I'm going to keep... Then we don't catch them. So yeah, keep going. Sorry. Well, look, we just have so much to get there. I still haven't gotten to your, your piece here. Yeah, so why don't there's we... There's nothing there. It's not really that good. So... <laughs> I know. There's a lot of great charts here. So <laughs> I want to dial through these because they... they Here's the point I'm, I'm going to work up to here, which is... Um, uh, we are beginning to see, I think, a shift in terms of um, kind of the, the 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 harsh reality that recessions enforce in the world. So we've had this long, prolonged summer, if you will, these salad days in the markets where the returns were easy, right? The borrowing was easy. Um, it was easy to get away with whatever you wanted to get away with, Um and, uh, you know, it was easy to get a job and easy to keep a job that didn't really, you know, potentially create a lot of value for the company or have demanding that much demand on your schedule and whatnot. And, and there's a bunch of things we're going to talk through here in just a moment about how I think those are going to get peeled away real fast. Yep. Right. Um, so um, we, we reason why I'm bringing this back up, just to remind everybody, is this is sort of a, hey, there are some reasons to maybe begin to get optimistic, but Maybe not so fast, because if we look at the data, there's still some really concerning things here. So let me just talk to a couple of charts I'll throw up here, sure. and then you can you can opine any way you like. First, you put up a chart here by Jesse Felder, which was showing the cyclicals to defensive ratio 
which um, there's a pretty big gap um, between them right now, uh, mm -hmm. or sorry, uh, between the ratio uh, and uh, yeah, I guess between manufacturing and the stock market, right? So your point is like, hey, uh, this signals that uh, cyclicals like the tech and consumer discretionary sectors could have a great deal of pain still in front of them. And, and uh, a point that, that Jesse was making, it was a really good chart that he put out. Um, you know, you know, and, and the thing is, is that there's a lot of these charts. Um, I do a lot of them as well. You know, if you take a look at earnings versus the Philly Fed index, or you take a look at, um, you know, uh, the year over year rate of change uh, in the S&P 500 versus the manufacturing composites, you know, all of these suggest that, you know, we've still got a ways to go uh, in the market to the downside. So we're, we haven't worked through those type of analysis. And that's what the chart that, that uh, Jesse Felder put together is also suggesting is that we've got more work to do in order to align valuations with economic growth. And this is something I touched on earlier when we were talking is that, you know, there's a lot of people right now, every time that we get a little whiff of activity and, and potentially, as, as we said, you know, every time somebody talks about, oh my gosh, the Fed's going to pivot, we start running stock prices up. And you know, really, we've had a lot of volatility this year. Um, the market hasn't gone anywhere since June. I mean, if you go, we we just kind of been trading sideways, up and down, up and down, up. We've had these big runs, big declines, big runs, big declines, and we haven't really gone much of anywhere. But it, it's just wearing investors out. But the problem is with the price staying where it is, roughly. Let's just say that prices stay right at four thousand or thirty five hundred. You know, you just pick a number; it doesn't matter. But if you say, okay. If, if prices are going to stay at 3,500 and earnings per share right now are $200 a share, if earnings come down and the prices don't move, valuations go up because it's the price to earnings valuation, right? So, you know, in order for valuations to decline, and we're still running at 20, 22 times earnings <clears throat> based on Schiller's CAPE ratio, we're still running at high valuations, you know, based on historic measures of, of just about any type of, of valuation measure you want to look at. Yes, they've come down some, but if earnings if earnings do have to decline in order, okay, let me back that up. If if you believe right, so this so here's the question: What do you believe? If you believe that the economy is going to slow down more because of the Fed rate hikes, which is exactly what the Fed wants to have happen, right? They've already talked about, hey, we've got some, we have to cause some pain here economically to get rid of inflation. So that means we're going to slow economic growth down. Well, if economic growth slows down, economic activity is where earnings come from. Earnings just don't magically show up, right? right. It's, it's what you and I buy at Walmart that translates to earnings. So if the economy slows down, if economic activity slows down, earnings have to come down. And in order for valuations to reflect slower economic growth and slower earnings, and this is the chart that, that Jesse put together, and that we built off of for that article is that prices have to come down. And so that would suggest a much deeper recession than what the Fed is hoping for. When the Fed hopes like, hey, we're hoping to have a, a shallow recession or a soft landing. Um, even Jerome Powell has now admitted that that window is narrowing for a soft landing. Yeah. Um, all right. So you just made a really good argument that, you know, if earnings come down, then prices have to come down. I want to just pull up a couple of charts real quick sure. from your article that give really good 
data suggesting why earnings have to come down. So first here, there's a chart um, from the um, uh, composite economic index uh, that is signaling that earnings will decline further as the economy slows. All right. So we've got this chart and basically it's it's now reverted back to the zero line and all the momentum looks like it's going to take it, you know, down yeah. into negative territory well, here. What, I, I'm going to mention that. Yeah, well, okay, comment that one first. Yeah, no, I just want to explain that chart because that's a composite that we built. Um, so the economic composite indicator is has a hundred different data points in it of the economy, and it covers everything from both leading to lagging, service to manufacturing. So you know, when you take a look at the manufacturing indexes, people go, "Well, you know, manufacturing is only twenty percent of the economy. It doesn't matter that much anymore." It matters. Um, but services, you know, that's what matters now. So this this economic composite has all the Fed regional manufacturing indexes in it, has the leading economic index, has the OECD economic indexes, because those OECD economic indexes have a very high correlation to U.S. economic activity, plus the NFIB small business investment um, index, as well as the Chicago Fed and national activity index, the Chicago PMI, the ISM and composite which is a combination of both the services and the manufacturing of ISM, all that is fed into this index. And it has a very high correlation with economic growth over time. Um, it also has a very high correlation with the six-month rate of change of the leading economic index. So in other words, what that index tells you, it's a very broad measure of economic activity, and it's telling you that the economy is on the verge of a recession, um, although we're not there just yet. So that I just want to I just want people to understand it's a very broad index. All right, that great. Um, which I, I think gives it even greater weight. And so the fact that the trajectory is heading down towards the negative bound now, you know, we should pay heed to it. You've got two other charts here. I'm just going to mention that I'll let you talk to them. Um, one is the percent change of uh, the S and P uh, annual earnings, um, and we're seeing that the estimates for next year um, are still um, it, it's projecting growth over over the coming quarters and each quarter looks like it's going to be bigger than the one before. <laughs> right. Um, and then you compare that to the deviation of earnings above or below the long-term growth trend. Uh, and you're showing here again, in the projection part of this chart, that things are still going to hang in there pretty well. Right. So basically I look at those three charts and I say, okay, if we look at the two charts I just mentioned, things don't look so bad. But then if I look at your, your composite chart that you had, it's like, wait a minute, these really aren't agreeing with each other here. And, and my guess is, is that the rosy estimates are going to have to come down to, to map to reality as reality unfolds. Yeah, let's let's talk about that one chart in particular, which is the deviation long-term growth trend. So if you go back in history, and I have earnings data going back to 1930. And you map this out, right? You look at the earnings growth over time. And, and I have to give credit where credit due. This was John Hustman's original work and I adapted it. Um, but when you take a look at earnings over time, they grow at 6% historically. The, the exponential growth trend line of earnings has been 6% over history and that's peak to peak. So in other words, at the peak of an economic expansion, and then to the peak of the next economic expansion, that growth rate is about 6%. The, the troughs run at about 5% exponentially, trough to trough. So if you take a look at that chart, what it's showing you is, is the deviation from the exponential growth trend line over time. And you the, the current estimates 
are above the the are, are, are so deviated from that long-term growth trend, historically, earnings always revert to or beyond that exponential growth trend, which right now runs about $170 a share versus estimates that are at 211. So, mm-hmm. you know, you know, historically, if you get in a recession, earnings are going to attract at least to that growth trend, if not below it, because if earnings don't contract, capitalism is broken. Because earnings are the most mean reverting se- uh, you know series kind of on record. So you know if if they're if they're not reverting, there's something else going on. I.e., they're you know somebody's pumping the, the economy full of money. Right. Yeah. Uh, distortion, deformation, or maybe just accounting yeah. fraud at the end of the day. Um, all right. Look. Well, so there's lots of other great um, charts in your piece. Um, I, I just want to read the concluding sure. uh, two paragraphs here or two sentences. Um, in other words, fair market for the market, sorry, in other words, fair value for the market could still be substantially lower. A quote, hard landing will likely reveal how much lower that could be. So you did a good job at the beginning of this uh, video, kind of given the bull case for what we could see over the near term here. But I think, you know, this is a good counterbalance to that, which is, hey, there's still a pretty compelling bearish argument to be made here. And uh, if you're going to go bullish, you really better at least have some contingency in place for these these bearish arguments here. You know, look, I get a lot of grief on when I do stuff like this, because like I read an article, it's like I, I say something bullish at the beginning or the end or vice versa. And it's like, well, you know, you have to pick a side. And it's like, no, I don't have to pick a side because that's not investing. You know, we talk a lot about confirmation bias. And when you're investing and investing capital, the most important thing to do is to evaluate both sides of the argument and then try to assign some probabilities as to which side of the argument is most likely going to be correct. You know, as we talked about before, there's a possibility we could have a soft landing. There's a possibility that the economy just could continue to grow. There's a possibility that earnings don't correct. There's a lot of possibilities of things that could happen. They're not probable. They've never happened before in history when the Fed's hiking at the most aggressive rate in history. But there's always possibilities. And so it's important as an investor to evaluate those possibilities and and apply some analysis to your portfolio and say, if that possibility occurs, am I prepared for that? Or am I all bet on this one side of an outcome that if this possibility occurs, I really get hurt? That's the thing that we want to try to avoid. Yeah, yeah. And just to use another analogy, um, you know, your job here, Lance, is the guy who is, um, you know, at the end of the day, managing client capital, but also here on this channel, trying to educate people is to try to help them understand where the puck is headed. But as we talk about, it's all about probabilities, right? So even if you can see where the puck is headed, you have to know where all the other guys on the other team are to say, hey, you know, a defender on the other team could come and actually take the puck in a new trajectory, right? And so I've got to be positioned to go where the puck's going, but ready to react if a surprise, you know, a a probable surprise happens here, right? And you're nodding as I'm saying this. No, that's a great analogy. And and I I use that Wayne Gretzky, you know, quote all the time because it's yeah. it's very apropos to to investing and in, in you're trying to guess you know where things are going to occur and you know back at the lows of of june you know we were buying tech stocks everybody hated them but we were buying some tech stocks because like hey if this market rallies that's where the money's going to go um and we just recently sold nvidia and amd they had a huge run and and you know we we reduced those positions we still own them um, we still like them long term, but we we cut those positions in half and, and we'll look for the next opportunity to buy them back. 
Yeah, and that's that's why I think it's a good you know context for folks where you will oftentimes come on here and we'll have a really bearish discussion perhaps. And then if they're subscribed to your SimpleVisor alerts trades, they might see the next week that you buy, you know, a, a growth stock, you know, like an NVIDIA and may say, well, why is he doing that? Well, it's, you're exactly explaining why right here. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So let's, let's um, get onto the. And by the way, and by the yeah. way, the trades don't always work. You know, it's full of fair disclosure, you know, normally, you know, like some guy says, hey, you know, I bought this stock. It went up 4,000%. Awesome. How many did you lose that went to zero? Right. Not every trade works out. We do our best and, and we try to get more winners than losers. But that's part of investing is that sometimes things don't work out as planned and we just have to do something else. That is true. And your partner, Mike Leibowitz, um, did a really good job of saying, hey, we bought some meta before its last yeah. earnings announcement. And boy, did that not work out for us the way that we thought it would. Right. <laughs> but, and your guys' credit, you got out of it quickly. Right. We had a thesis. It proved not to be right. OK, we're done. And, and we bought a very small percentage of the portfolio. And again, we've talked about this you know, before. When we start buying a position, we do very small percentage weightings in the portfolio just in case, like a meta, something doesn't work out. And then if it works out, then we'll add to that position over time. So, you know, it's always about size. When we talk about risk management, it's about sizing your bets. You know, you know I can bet on a pair of twos playing poker and win a hand, right? I just probably don't want to bet all in on a pair of twos. And, you know, so I bet very small. If it looks like I'm going to win, maybe I, uh, you know, add to my bet a little bit. Maybe I can trick Adam and bluff Adam a bit. And he throws away a full house against a pair of twos. You know, he's not the smartest player. Um, but <laughs> but I'd argue you know, if that actually weren't true. I, I, I'm, I, I'm not very know, good I, at poker. Yeah. But, you know, I can win a hand. You know, it's, it's possible, but I just don't want to bet a lot of money on it. So investing is the same way. Look, we're all speculators. Do not call yourself an investor. Do not think you're an investor. You are not an investor. You are a speculator. I'm a speculator. Adam's a speculator. We're all speculators because all we're doing is buying pieces of paper at one price and we're praying to God we can sell them at a higher price later. That's speculation in its purest form. Yeah, um, I do. Just because you brought that up, I, I do want to reiterate that you and I have already talked a lot in this channel in the past about um, our enthusiasm for the day where we can be more investors um, than you, you can be in today's market. We're still so much of the price action is being driven by policymakers, right? Because you're not doing the old fashioned, okay, if I think a sector's good, who's the good person, good player in the sector and buying them, it's more, what do I think this old dude's going to do around a table? Because that's what's going to matter at the end of the day, right? Exactly. All right. Um, so uh, moving on to this next uh, point here. Oh, sorry, two things real quick. One, um, Mike Leibowitz, I mentioned to folks recently that we've got Mike lined up to do a live presentation um, helping folks understand bonds and you know relatively fundamental bond math. Um, it's going to be live so that after he gives the presentation, we can then actually do some live Q&A. Um, we initially had that scheduled for this week. It has been moved to next week. I believe it's going to be next Tuesday. Um, so keep an eye out for that, folks. I've had a lot of requests for this, and Michael was kind enough to say, sure, I'll come on and talk about bonds. So we've got that coming on. Also, um, when I was talking earlier, I made the comment, um, I see you nodding as I say this, Lance. And I, I do that because uh, we're on Zoom, and so the camera's on me when I'm talking, and you can't, you can't see Lance nodding. So I'll mention that from time to time. But I've, I've heard from people that that's part of their like wealthy on bingo card now. 
It's like whenever I say that, that's like a okay drink. <laughs> yeah, so I'll try not to abuse that power. There are a few other ones like that that people have brought up, which I think is pretty funny. We're we're becoming a, a meme, meme here, Lance. Yeah, well, no, I think it's great because they can't see me flipping you off either. So yeah, exactly. And you notice I don't mention those ones. <laughs> um, all right. So back to the point I was making earlier here, which is um, it, it is it is looking increasingly probable as we look at the data, and we've talked about this for weeks, Lance. Is that uh, months actually is that you know we're going to have recession next year and a real recession meaning one that we actually feel and people can't try to push off of like well that's not the real definition of recession it's going to be one where we're all like yeah we're in a bad recession at this point in time and with that comes I think a, a, a changing of the guard it, just in terms of the way the world has generally worked since the global financial crisis where money has been so easy and the authorities have been so quick to intervene and we've been able to sort of, if we get into a zone of discomfort, somebody is going to come rescue us, whether it's Jerome Powell, whether it's Congress, whether it's the HR department, you know, we've all become accustomed to our like safe spaces and, you know, the the sense of entitlement, I'll say, for at least certain types of people that uh, the fact that they're getting a paycheck means they they deserve it. And I'm not I'm not trying to be cruel here. What I'm really trying to do is just have someone who has lived through several down cycles in the economy is whether you think that's all right or wrong, it doesn't matter. It all goes out the window during a recession. We've talked in the past, Lance, about how um, when I worked in Silicon Valley, seeing my commute change over the course of a month from like an hour and a half commute to a 15 minute commute because so many jobs vaporized in such yeah. a quick period of time, right? And everything the companies have been telling you about how they value employees and, you know, right up, we talk about how layoffs are the last thing a company wants to do. So right up to the layoffs, they are telling you everything that they think you want to hear about how we're all in this together and we need everybody to pull hard so that the, the, the company can make it through these tough times. And then you come in one day and like half the company gets, you know, pig slips, yeah. right? Um, and, and, one reason why I'm mentioning this today is um, I, I put a comment out on Twitter. So Elon Musk fired half of Twitter, you know, very visibly, what, like a week or so ago, right? Yeah. And then today he made the remaining employees sign a pledge that basically says, we're going to demand extraordinary performance from you here. Like basically Twitter's in the fight of its life here, right? And if you don't want to be part of that, sure. you know, don't sign this, you'll get three months severance and there's the door, right? And Right now, it's unclear exactly exactly what's going on. We don't have a lot of specific clarity into it, but the rumor mill is that tons of people are leaving, right? And what's so interesting to me is Twitter's still working, right? Yeah. Now, I'm not saying it's not going to have rocky times ahead, but if you can lose, let's somewhat conservatively estimate here, 75% of your employees over the course of a couple of weeks, and the company kind of still visibly functions the way it always has, it does tend to sort of underscore that there were a lot of jobs there that weren't essential to daily operations. Right. Right. Yeah. You, you, and I, you and I have talked about this before. It's like every time we have a government layoff, we always furlough 950,000 people that are called non-essential workers. Right. And we, you know, we pay them anyway. But, you know, it's always interesting. You know, I've, I've, unfortunately, I've had to fire people in the past and, 
it sucks. I hate firing people. I hate hiring people. I hate people, but <laughs> I'm teasing. Um, but I hate firing people, right? Because you know it's gonna it's gonna impact their lives, but you know, they weren't a good performer or they weren't a good fit, or whatever the reason is, right? It's it's you know, it's just it's just part or, of doing it. Or sometimes you literally can't afford them anymore. They they or, were they, they were adding incremental value, but not essential value. Yeah. Exactly. And and what happens with every business is that during the boom times, right? We hire a bunch of people, it's like, oh yeah. We need Joe and Bob and Frank and Marcy and Christina and all these other people. We need to do all these jobs. And then when things get tough, you start figuring out that really Bob and Christina are doing the same job that Frank could do, right? And so you start consolidating jobs and downsizing those type of things. But it's always interesting because when you have to let somebody go, their initial reaction is always, well, you're never going to survive without me. And somehow the company always survives. And, and this is right now, there's RIP Twitter um, it's kind of one of the trending hashtags on Twitter. Rip and, like RIP Twitter. RIP Twitter. Yeah. And then and that's easy. That's these employees leaving. It's like, oh, they're never going to survive without me. Look, you know, I, I think that Twitter is going to probably have. So if look, Elon smart. Elon Musk is a smart guy. He's very radical. He's very obnoxious, and I, I don't personally like him as a person, but you got to give him credit. I mean, he's built SpaceX and solar first yeah. uh, uh, the solar company. Even if you don't like the means, he said some amazing accomplishments. Yeah, yeah. He's, he, the guy's the guy's not stupid, and you know he'll figure Twitter out, right? And and you know, hey, pay attention, people. If you can code, which you know I'm telling my son to do this right now, is like learn to code, or if you know how to code, here's an opportunity to go work at a company that's effectively on the ground floor. They've gone private, and everybody's left. So if you've got some skills and some willing willingness to step in and work hard. There, here is a pathway you could really go build something for yourself inside this company and move up very quickly. And you know, this this is an opportunity to make a lot of money, you know, with you know from Twitter. So you know, it, you know, there's there's going to be some people that that understand the value of hard work. And again, we've created this culture where it's like, oh, I don't want to work hard. People, I, I I work 18 hours a day every day, seven days a week, I answer emails, you email me on a Sunday, you'll get an email back, right? Adam will tell you, you know, I answer the phone, you know, because I run a business. And this is what business requires. And this is an opportunity. And he'll get this turned around, I think he'll do fine. Um, He's got to flush all this out. But you're, you're about to find out, you know, what's essential and what's not inside this company. So it's probably a good process he's doing. Well, well, so he, here's my point. And look, who, who knows? Maybe in a month, Twitter actually dies and all the, the folks who were predicting it's it, right, right? It's possible. I don't know. I would actually bet that it's going to stick around. But but he, here's my point, which is- it depends on how many bots he gets rid of. <laughs> yeah. Well, but, you know, Elon seems to be, you know, an Uber operator. And, you know, again, he's he's proven the doubters wrong a lot. Um, but, but my bigger point is, look- um, I think we're going to have a lot more layoffs for all the reasons that you and I have talked about both on this video, but many prior ones about the type of recession that we're going into, right? So I think jobs are going to be shed and they're getting shed increasingly in the tech industry for sure, right? You know, Facebook just laid off 10%. I mean, almost every day we see another company that's laying people off here. Um, So I think we have to prepare for that as I've warned people a lot about. But here's the point I'm trying to get to, which is if in six months, Twitter is running smoothly. Right. It's it's clear that it didn't die from this mass exodus and they have been able to run the ship well or at least well enough with a fraction of the crew that was there. 
I predict you are going to see a ton of companies in tech, but probably spilling in other industries who are going to say, whoa, wait a minute. This guy just got his employee costs down by over 50%, right? And he's still delivering value, right? Like we need to take, we need to challenge our assumptions about how many essential employees we have, right? So whatever downsizing they're already doing from, uh, you know, forced to do because of a recession, if Twitter is successful at this, I think it might show people just like Musk did with the electric car, like, oh, you can actually make a cool looking electric car that drives really fast, right, which nobody believed before. He may actually shift the goalposts for what essential means in corporate America, or at least in the tech side of things, which is very good from a corporate health standpoint, not so good in the near term from an employee standpoint, right? So you, that's that's the potential I just want to flag on here. No, I, I think it's I think you're right because even Mark Zuckerberg said that there's a lot of employees at, at Meta that probably shouldn't be there. Um, because you know what happened is these companies, Google did the same thing, <clears throat> Amazon did the same thing. They they create these groups and they say, Well, just go hire whoever, whoever, kind of hire whoever you want, right? You're you're in charge of this group. And so there was just a lot of hiring that was done because people were just hiring everybody. And there was really no control over the hiring, so to speak. And, and so, you know, and that was one thing that I was, I was discussing on the radio show this past week is that, you know, we're seeing a lot of layoffs in the tech industry. But if you take a look at the employment increase in tech companies versus the rest of the economy, there's a huge gap. Yeah. So, you know, and so a lot of these layoffs is just really kind of taking, you know, they were just hiring hand over fist because of all this demand from work from home and everything else that was occurring during the pandemic. Now that people are going back to the office, that demand's kind of drying up and they're just really kind of getting rid of those excess employees and kind of getting back down to, you know, where they were previously. So, you know, we haven't even gotten into the pace of where they're really cutting staff yet. They're just kind of getting rid of this excess hiring they did during the pandemic. Right. And, and look, I know the tech industry isn't every other industry out there, but it is a bellwether and it is generally a leading indicator. So, um, as I mean, I'm looking, know, I'm, looking, I'm looking for layoffs in manufacturing, construction, you know, industrials, banking. Right. When we start, which we are that, beginning to see, right? Yeah, Not to the extent of tech yet, but but we are beginning to see some right. of that, right? But when you see that pick up, now you know the economy is really starting to slow down. Right, and we'll be tracking that every week on this program, folks. So don't worry when it when it really begins to happen at scale, we'll be alerting you. But I, I do just want to tell this quick story, which is so, as folks may know, I worked for Yahoo. Uh, in Silicon Valley um, for a long time, for almost 10 years. And my first day at Yahoo was bananas because I joined Yahoo the, on the first day of its first layoffs, sorry, on the day of its first layoffs in its history, right? So I joined the company the moment it shifted from fantasy playground to, oh, I guess we got to run a business here, right? <laughs> and it was the weirdest experience in the world showing up. Um, actually, the week before I showed up uh, to, to work, uh, my boss said, hey, you know, we're having an all-hands company meeting. Why don't you come and just see the company you're going to be joining? So I, I walked into the, the cafeteria, which is where they were having the meeting. And boy, you know, uh, Jerry and Dave Philo were up there on stage, as was Tim Kugel, who was the original CEO of Yahoo. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. I can't believe I'm going to work here. And then they shocked the entire room by saying, you know what, we're going to have to start laying some of you off. And they're crying. And Tim Kugel, TK, <laughs> announces he's going to have to step down as CEO. And it was like, I thought I was joining this like birthday party. And I ended up at like a wake, right? <laughs> so then when I showed up on my first day of work, you know, I'm like 
setting up my little cubicle with my phone and my stapler and stuff. And everybody around me is getting calls to go into the conference room and finding out they're losing their job. I mean, it, it was it was horrific to watch. It was like watching a, you know, a pileup on the highway. Um, and then, of course, I saw, you know, what happened afterwards, which was everybody who had made their pile of money, you know, started sending out those all company. Hey, farewell. It's been great working here, but I'm just going to go count my millions now. You know, see you guys. <laughs> And the company had to figure out what with what was left. Okay, how do we how do we create something sustainable out of this, right? So I, I saw it then. Um, I saw it again when uh, Silicon Valley slammed into the the 08 uh, crisis, and and I saw um, coming out of that with all of the QE and the stimulus and, and some of the innovations, how uh, how even more money than in the dot com boom flowed back into tech. And all of that crazy perks and entitlements and free whatevers, you know, I thought I had seen the end of it when I joined Yahoo, but that stuff returned with a vengeance on steroids once we got into the post-2010 era. And, you know, we, we've now, you know, we, we've seen we've seen all these, I'm basically just telling people, I know what it's like, you know, on the front lines there in terms of, of how much of a fantasy working for companies like Google or Meta or Twitter has been. And so it's going to be a really rude awakening in particular for those people who have gotten used to that. And there's a really funny Babylon B video that's been circulating around YouTube this week of um, a, a recent Twitter um, employee, you know, now applying for their first job in the real world outside of Twitter, right? And they just, they, they can't understand why there's not a meditation room everywhere, or there aren't morning mimosas, or, you know, they see grease on somebody's hand, and they have no idea what it is, right? Um, so my, my point is, is look, this is all extremes. Again, the tech is an extreme example of this, but it is a bellwether of where everything is going, right? And so um, I, I do fear that that yeah, a lot of people are going to lose their jobs and we're going to have a bad recession. But I fear that the recovery from this is not going to be a standard. Okay, we went through the bus cycle. Now we're going to go back to a boom cycle like we just went to before. I think potentially especially if companies really understand now that they might be able to get by with a, a, a staff size that's substantially less than what they thought was critical. Um, we may not see the type of job recovery from this downturn than we saw before. I'm not saying that that's going to happen, but I'm just saying the probability of that is beginning to grow in my estimation. Well, no, and I think if you go look at corporate profit margins in particular, so corporate profit margins, you know, spurted up to the highest level on record when we shut down the economy, right? Because you had Tons of capital coming in, right? All the stimulus checks, which created a lot of abnormal demand for goods and services. But we had shut down a big chunk of the economy, and everybody kind of got laid off in mass because we shut down, you know, activity. So these companies all of a sudden have this big profit margin because of, of reduced staff, right? But I mean, the highest cost of any business is labor. So when these profit margins start to come down, corporations have gotten very used to these very elevated profit margins. I agree with you here. One of the byproducts from all this could be that companies become much more selective about who they hire, when they hire, and how they hire in order to maintain those more elevated profit margins. In other words, I become more selective about you know, who I hire. Can, you know, Adam, can you do these five jobs? And I'm going to pay you for one, but I need you to do these five jobs rather than just paying five different people to kind of half-ass do jobs. And right. that's going to be, I think it's going to be a big difference coming. And let, let me interrupt you to let you react to this, which is what we've been hearing a lot about recently is, look, um, 
you know, there's there's a labor shortage, right? I think a recession is going to take care of that in the short term. Um, but people are saying, look, you know, baby boomers are going to start retiring soon. So demographically, that's actually inflationary because you're going to have fewer workers um, per company out there going forward. And so, you know, they're going to be able to demand higher wages and that's going to be inflationary. And that may be true in certain cases in certain industries, but um, we may find, like you and I are talking about here, Lance, that companies don't need as many workers or they, de they may demand that the workers that are there do wear more hats and that's just the way it's going to be going forward. And it may not create the inflationary wage pressure that some people are counting on. You know, it's interesting. I, I, uh, I can't remember where I saw this. It was a uh probably two, three weeks ago, you and I have talked about the problems with the job. So when you talk about job openings, we're, Adam and I are talking about the, the JOLT survey, which is the Job Opening Labor Turnover Survey. And that's produced by the BLS once a month. And we get this report. And it tells us how many job openings there are. And, and Adam and I have talked about before, there's a lot of double counting, triple counting of jobs in those job openings. Um, as an example, a lot of restaurant owners will keep a job posted all the time because they have a lot of turnover in their business, right? Hostesses, waiters, they constantly leave jobs to go take a job somewhere at a different restaurant. So they just kind of leave that opening open all the time, even though they may not be actively hiring. But there's also some, some concerns about, you know, they're possibly double counting job openings, the same job opening listed on multiple sites. So you know, there's like, you know, career.com and um, you know, all these other job sites. And so they've all got job listings. So it's potential. And, and, and the reason I'm saying this, there's a potential that we're getting an overstatement of all these job openings that have occurred since the pandemic shutdown. And, and right. there was a really interesting chart about this. It kind of brought this, you know, focus back. It was produced by LinkedIn. Um, LinkedIn, you know, surveyed their own site, which is full of job postings and job hirings and all this. And they and, and they looked at the number of job openings they had on LinkedIn versus those getting hired on, on LinkedIn. And that number was drastically lower than what the job opening labor turnover survey said, um, which is probably more realistic. And, and you know, when you look at LinkedIn's data um, and kind of where the growth of job openings were relative to past historical trends, it seemed to be a lot more realistic than actually what's kind of coming out of the BLS right now. So, you know, I still kind of gravitate to this idea that, you know, yes, I know there's a lot of job openings according to JOLTS, but that data seems to be skewed because it's, it's, really, it's really accelerated so quickly relative to past historical trends. It's like all of a sudden we're just creating a mountain of job openings, but, but there's really not the economic demand for it. So, you know, why are all these businesses, you know, having hirings, hiring openings that they can't fill, you know, when the economic demand is, is really starting to, to wane? And that's and so I think the LinkedIn probably shows us that that eventually that jolt survey will catch up with reality. Yeah. And I'll just even put my neck out and say, I, I think that those current jolts PLS numbers are. <laughs> highly suspect is the kindest way that I can put it, but I don't believe them. It's, and yeah. I, I know I'm supposed to be more unbiased, but I'm highly <laughs> well, I'm, I'm just, I'm just using two different surveys that kind of tell us the same thing. And just, you know, you know, I just, I, I think there's, we talked about, you know, employment, there's better ways to calculate employment. We just don't do it. Right. So, right. Right. And, and, and we don't, and there may be, re I'm not saying for sure there is, but there may be reasons we don't, you know, right now it does serve, the Fed, in terms of its its goal to 
be able to hike up as high as it wants to, to look at both um, lagging data and maybe lagging data that overemphasizes certain things. Yeah. Sure. All right. Speaking of which, so um, uh, I want to get to, uh, want to get to the end of this because I wanna, don't want to make it as long as we, we've been making the past couple of ones. All right, let's, let's um, wrap it up. That's yeah, good. we're going, we're going to, um, the path okay. we're going to take there is going to go through, um, <clears throat> mentioning a couple of bits of data here. I want to get to your rant. Um, I'm going to put my topic. I'm going to punt that to the following week. Uh, I'll you, um, I'll do, we'll do your topic. You punt my topic for next week. Nope. Nope. Cause mine needs more time than we're going to have. So we're going to end with yours. Um, and, uh, and I also want to ask you about your trades. I think you mentioned them briefly, but I'm not sure we got the comprehensive answer from you. So I want to give you a chance to do that. So real quick, just on this whole arc of, of, you know, what might happen with the jobs market, um, contracting going forward. Um, we generally do our sort of recession watch. Um, uh, again, there just continues to be more and more data that, that comes in. I could go through a whole bunch of headlines here. Um, there's just maybe two I want to put up here. One is that U.S. existing home sales are now crashing at their fastest pace since the Lehman crisis, right? So this is sales. This isn't uh, prices yet, um, but sales uh, precedes prices, right? Sales weakness precedes price weakness. Um, so definitely the market is, is this, you know, we used to debate this a few months ago, what was going to happen in housing. Now it's not up for debate anymore. The housing market is in correction now. It's just a question of, of how big and bad is the correction going to be? Um, and uh, uh, another headline here that, um, uh, or maybe not headline, but um, oil prices are now contracting pretty hard. Um, and there's probably a lot of factors that are going in, in, into that. I don't, I don't want to necessarily say this conclusion is, is driving everything, but um, uh, at some point, uh, the global shakeup in trade, the flows of energy that are a big part of that um, is going to get worked out. The worst of the kinks are going to get worked out. Um, they're going to find more efficient ways to get the energy to where it's needed and whatnot. And so my question is, is um, what, what do we think is, or my question you'll answer is, what do you think is going to win out here as we go into 2022? Is it going to be still the the supply chain issues or just the the, the increased demand globally uh uh, and I, I maybe should walk that word back again. Um, the the uh, essential need for oil in certain parts of the, the world right now, Europe being a really good example. Um, or do we think demand destruction uh, just slowing the global economy enough that, yeah, maybe certain regions are going to demand more oil than they used to, but net net around the world, the actual total global demand for oil is is contracting and therefore oil prices will start coming down again. Well, since you said, since you started out by saying going into 2022, I'm predicting that oil prices will be higher for 2022. Um, did I say that? Okay, good catch. Yeah. <laughs> but going into 2023, um, as we as we round the corner here, um, you know that is, you know, look, it's all about global supply and demand ultimately. And you know, in 2021, we were talking about it was the time to buy energy because everybody hated energy stocks. Now. I, you know, I have people emailing me, I'm 100% long energy, I'm never selling them. They're just going to the moon from here. Be careful with that. Um, we've talked about the periodic table of returns before and whatever's at the top for a year or two tends to fall right back to the bottom. So right. there's a lot of reasons why oil prices will decline next year. A recession is a really good reason why, because that's a contraction demand, oil prices will fall, supply will pick up. 
So, you know, I think there's a really good, and we've been trimming our oil stocks over the last couple of months. We're about to trim them next week again. Um, you know, so, so again, you know, we've had very nice, you know, gains in these stocks and we just keep trimming them. They keep growing up to be a bigger percentage of the portfolio. We trim them back and we just keep harvesting those, those profits. But, you know, at some point that tide is going to turn. And so if you take a look at what's the most hated right now, what, what does everybody hate? Everybody hates bonds and they hate tra- uh, uh, technology stocks. They hate discretionary stocks. At some point, those are likely going to be your biggest winners. So money's going to automatically rotate out of what was winning to go chase what wasn't winning. And so you've got to remember, you may have this whole thesis, and this is why I warn people all the time, be careful with thesis. You know, we can all day long, we can have this thesis. We're running out of oil and we're going to have to, oil prices are going to go to $500 a barrel. Pick your number. But ultimately, at the end of the day, this is about demand in the market, supply and demand in the markets. And if there is an asset that's outperforming this asset, money will flow from this asset, regardless of your thesis, into these other assets that are performing better. And that will ultimately happen. And that'll happen when we start to see, you know, potentially a recovery out of a recession or whatever it is, you're going to see this big rotation of flows and you're going to want to make sure you're on the right side of that trade. So just, you know, my, my whole point is always, you know, be careful with these big, broad macroeconomic theses that say the dollar's going to zero, oil's going to the moon. Maybe it's possible. I'm not saying it's not possible, but things don't typically always work out that way. The dollar has done a really, you know, big job of not going to zero this year, which was all the prediction last year. So, right. you know, that's you want to be careful with that. I'm not saying the yeah. dollar's not going to correct because it is, but just it's probably not going to zero. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, well good explanation. Um, and look, I mean, personally, I feel like money flowing into the energy complex makes just a lot more sense to me than than it mm-hmm. did flowing into the fang stocks and and will when it flows back into the fang stocks again yeah. because oil powers the global economy. It's an essential product. We need it, right? Um, but that's why I sort of raised this question of, of, Hey, you know, um, the, the mindset right now is, yeah, we've got these constrained, you know, global supply chains and oil price is going to be pegged high for the foreseeable future here. And there were calls not that long ago for $300 a barrel oil and all that type of stuff. And that still may come true. But as we look at the potential scope of the, the recession that the world is headed into, right, this is not going to happen in the U S in a vacuum. Um, if we're feeling it badly, chances are a lot of the world's going to be feeling it a lot worse than, than we are, right? That could have a material impact on global demand. And the fact that oil is now back out of the 90s, you know, headed to the downside is a sign that demand to a certain extent is ebbing enough for that price action to happen. And I want to just put up one chart here of yours, Lance. It's from the earlier piece of yours we were talking about. This shows how uh, it basically shows the... Um, uh, how uh, consensus earnings for uh, the S&P as a whole compares to the S&P if you take out the energy stocks. And you can see the energy stocks have really been supporting the earnings of the S&P, right? And and why I bring this up is if, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but if the energy companies start um, doing less well going forward because demand for oil is coming down and they begin to make less money, man, that could be another shoe to drop, you know, the, the markets going forward from here. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the market would be off substantially. If, if, if energy stocks weren't up 40% this year. Now, now, mind you, energy only makes up 
the energy only made up 2% of the index going into this year. Now they're up to 4% of the index. But energy stocks are 40% you know, up this year versus everything else being negative. If energy stocks were tracking the market, the market would be down a lot more than it is, right? It would. Earning, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but if they're only 4% of the market, but they're driving that much of the market's earnings, that's amazing. Yeah, it is. I mean, they're just printing capital right now. And you know, it's interesting, the UK has now gone after a windfall's profit tax on energy companies, yep. which is you know, just stupid. But you know, we'll, we'll probably see that here eventually as well. It's, stupidity does not fall far from the tree. Um, <laughs> You know, so, but, you know, again, this is going to revert at some point and these profit margins and these excess, these excess profits will revert and they're going to become a drag on the overall index as well. So, you know, it's just going to be a function of time. But again, you know, just you've got to be careful of rotating. And my whole point is, is just be careful. Again, what I said earlier, be careful of big macro theses. Markets turn and they tend to do things that you don't expect them to do because it's just really a chase of money flows. Yeah. All right. Well, wise words. Um, so trades, um, yeah. anything more than what you mentioned to us at the beginning of this discussion? Uh, uh, just a couple. We uh, So this week, all we did was, uh, this was on, uh, let's see, what's, what is today? The 18th. So uh, the 14th, whatever day that was, Monday. <coughs> Excuse me. So on Monday, uh, we trimmed back on NVIDIA and AMD. I said that earlier. We also trim, we had bought Goldman Sachs, um, you know, at the bottom of the market uh, back in about four or five weeks ago. That stock was up like 20% from the lows. So we, we reduced that. Um, we also reduced um, a couple of other just kind of small positions, just really just, you know, we're trying to get our, our total equity exposure uh, in our portfolio down to around 35%. Uh, going into next year, um, we're about 38% right now on exposure. So we've got a little bit more to go. Um, and so what we're looking for here is, is a bit of a pullback. Uh, potentially, we might add a little bit um, to a couple of stocks that we do like, get this next kind of rally higher the, the year end, cut exposure back to 35%. And then we'll kind of see what the market does next year. Okay. And this is just seems to me you're just living uh, the you know, you're walking your talk here in terms of gardening, right? You're doing your portfolio gardening here with your position sizing. Talked about doing this thing. You know, we sold Verizon earlier this year, replaced it with Comcast, um, which is done decently. Um, but, you know, we, we, li we like Verizon. We think fundamentally it's a great stock, 7% yield. Don't see any reason not to own it. And we'll buy it back. I just got to wait for my 30 days to, to, to yeah. go buy so I can avoid the wash sell rule. But, you know, that we just did a couple of things this year that were tax loss sales because we've taken a lot of gains early this year. We, we came into this year with 70 percent exposure uh, in a 60-40 model, um, and we cut that to 35 percent at the very beginning of this year. Um, so we had a lot of gains that we need to offset going into the year end. All right, great. And just a reminder to folks, look at your portfolios. If there are positions that you've got sizable losses in. Might not be, you know, a bad idea to maybe follow Lance's suit here and, uh, you know, do a little bit of tax loss harvesting. You're raising your hand there. Yeah, I just going to say is like this is a really important point. Um, people tend not to want to sell things because they go, well, but it might come back. Just because you sell something doesn't mean you can't buy it back, right? right. Just sell it, take the tax loss. You can offset it against gains later. Give you a little tax benefit. Wait 30 days. And then buy the stock back 31 days. And you can even do what, what you're doing with Comcast there with Verizon, where you can jump into a near 
investment yep. in those 30 days just to keep exposure to whatever upside you were hopeful for, right? And then shift back into the original instrument after your 30-day window's over. Exactly. And if you're in the, in the ETFs, you don't even have to wait the 30 days. I got into a big argument with an accountant after one of our videos. And uh, so basically, the IRS doesn't even look, if you have two identical, you could buy an S&P index fund from Vanguard, sell it at a loss, buy an S&P index fund from BlackRock, and the IRS considers that two totally different instruments. So you don't have to worry about tax loss sale when you're doing ETFs. Wow. Okay. Um, although just to be super clear, if you own an ETF, sell it, buy it back within the 30-day window, that exact same ETF, that is a wash sale. That, that is a wash sale. But okay. you can buy two identical ETFs of different companies, and that is not a violation. And, it, and, it, and it's not too similar for the SEC to and, carry. And just, and, just, and just a disclaimer, I am not an accountant. So if you disagree with my statement, <laughs> I've had too many, I, I don't know for certain, but I've had a bunch of emails from accountants telling me that WASA rules don't apply in ETFs with two different firms, even though they're the same ETF. All right. So, well, two, two things on that. One is um, if this is something you guys haven't done before, um, obviously we recommend talking it through with your financial advisor um, to get their advice or, or you know, talk to Lance's firm. Um, uh, and if you're going to do it, um, you know, especially if it's at any real volume, maybe put in a call to your accountant and just give him a heads up and make sure that he's cool with your plan. Yeah. And, and by the way, wash sales only apply to taxable accounts. It does not apply to Roth IRAs, IRAs, anything like that, because you just simply pay income tax on that. Yep. Got it. All righty. Um, all right. So as we start to wrap things up here, Lance, I'm going to let you take us out here talking about stakeholder capital. Yeah. Stakeholder capitalism. Capital. Um, so, so this and, and the reason I brought that up earlier is because of the whole FTX Sam Bankman Freed thing. And there's a great video floating around of him talking about when he was first, when he was like 29, first starting this whole FTX thing. He's like, I just want to give away money. I don't care about being rich. I just want to you know, be. I just want to be a philanthropist. And you know, corporations have the responsibility to do good for society. And that in a nutshell, is the World Economic Forum's statement of what's called stakeholder capitalism. Now, stakeholder capitalism is not shareholders. Right. You gotta be, be careful about this. Stakeholder capitalism is a spinoff of this whole ESG thing, which we have already, I've written articles on it. We've discussed the sham of ESG here uh, numerous times. Um, which is a great way for these companies like Black, BlackRock to charge you a whole bunch more money for nothing. <laughs> you get the exact same product, just pay four times as much for it. But stakeholder capitalism is this creation by the World Economic Forum to put corporations in charge of your world. In other words, stakeholder capitalism says that corporations are responsible for cleaning up the environment, for making sure that you get the right type of information, that you know, the corporations are responsible to make sure that you know, the world is operating in a manner that is what would be considered beneficial, to whom is the question. But it's, it's putting corporations in charge of you. Right. And this is the, the, the whole benefit of stakeholder capitalism is that the corporations are now just determining what's best for you and what the best outcome is. And this was the very premise around which Sam Bankman-Fried formed FTX was this whole idea that 
I'm going to create this company. I don't want to, I don't care about being rich. Well, congratulations. You're not anymore. Um, you know, but you know, I'm just going to give, and they had, they had this whole interview with him where you know, he could be giving away $500 million a year to charity starting over the next decade. And he's just going to give that away every year. And it sounds great. And it's like, and he, he's like, and his, if you've ever heard him talk, he sounds like he's about five years old. Um, he's like, you know, yeah, I'm just, you know, going to give all this money away and it's great. And I don't care about being rich. And, but yet he was giving, you know, living in a $40 million penthouse and giving away, you know, uh, houses to his employees and all kinds of stuff. Doesn't care about being rich, right? Um, but this whole idea of stakeholder capitalism is that stepping stone to socialism. And this, and, and a lot of these movements that are being put out into the press and trying to make it sound appealing to you is that, oh, this will be better for you. It's not. I, and, and my daughter, the reason this came up is my daughter, she's, she's a sophomore in high school. And she asked me, she says, Dad, I, I keep hearing people talk about state, my, even my teachers talking about stakeholder capitalism in my business class. And I'm like, I go, I get it. I understand what you want. I said, let me, she goes, but it sounds like it's, it, would, it would be better for everybody if this was the case, right? Everybody would be wealthier. And that's absolutely not the case. And I explained it to her this way. I said, imagine that you go into your classroom and your teacher says, on Friday, we're going to have an exam and it's going to account for 50% of your grade. And so you're going to go home and, and she's very smart. So she goes home and she's going to study. And she's going to stay up all night studying and she's going to do everything she needs to do to go make a good grade on this exam. Because if she doesn't make a good grade on the exam, I take away her car. That's the way it works. Um, but all of her friends don't. Right. They don't study. They just say, yeah, whatever. It's a test. Right. So they don't study. So they, they so the class comes in, they take the test and 25 percent of the class makes A's. 75% of the class makes Ds, or just call it 50-50 even, right? So 50 make A's, 50 make Ds and F's. So the teacher says, you know what we're going to do? We're just going to average the grade. Everybody, we're just going to average them. Everybody gets the same grade, so everybody gets a C, right? Sounds great. That's fair, right? That's what, you know, everybody's equal. And this is the beautiful thing about being equal. We all get the same thing, right? There's nobody's favored over anybody else. So... She's like, well, she goes, that's not really fair. I go, well, yeah, it's not fair. So let me ask you this question. The next week you go in, teacher says, guess what? We're gonna have another test on Friday. It's gonna count for the other 50% of your grade. We'll see you on Friday. Are you gonna study for it? She's like, no. And I said, well, why not? She goes, well, if I study for it, I'm just gonna get the same grade everybody else gets. And I go, here's the problem. Friday comes, you go take the test, you didn't study for it. So now you've got 50% of the kids making, making C's and the other 50% of the kids making F's. Now your grade's a D. And she's like, oh, that's terrible. And this is the problem with stakeholder capitalism and socialism is that the way that, that the idea works, it sounds great, but it drives everybody to the lowest common denominator of individuals. So wages, economic prosperity, economic output, everything drops to the very lowest level because there's no incentive to produce. If there's no incentive for me to take risk because I don't get rewarded for it, there's no incentive to do it, which drives everything to the lowest common denominator, puts corporations in charge of everything, which is exactly what you don't want in a capitalist system. So calling it stakeholder capitalism makes it sound good, but it's socialism in a cloak. Well, I, I think you just described the 
the kind of devolution that socialism, at least to date in every yeah. experiment where we've seen it played out, you know, naturally ends at. Um, it also introduces the challenge that you're talking about there too, Lance, of sort of who watches the watchman, yeah. right? The guys that are actually setting the rules and running it, right? Um, you hope they're all going to be saints. History has shown they never are, you know, uh, FTX is just the, the latest example of that. Yeah. And it's super easy to talk about how much of a philanthropist you're going to be and give away up to a half billion dollars a year when you're worth at the time, I think he was worth over 30 billion, right? When he was saying that, right? So I mean, it's just, and, and living in mansions that, you know, had been paid by FTX with client capital illegal. I mean, just, <laughs> so you have the whole watch. Just, the watch just the little issue. things. Yeah. And, and, and you know, j just, we're, your example is kind of an extreme example and people can kind of laugh about it and say, yeah, well, hopefully it'll never get that bad, Lance. But I, I want to tell a quick story as we conclude here. And man, this will be one of our shorter ones, which would be amazing. Still over an hour and a half. Um, but uh, I was at a dinner about a year ago with fund managers. Um, a friend of mine is uh, high up in the banking system and, and lives in Europe and brought a bunch of European fund managers here. And we're all getting to know each other and chatting around the, the table. And the topic of ESG came up and uh, well, really the topic of ESG came up and then the topic of Tesla and how Tesla, that was back when Tesla was still setting crazy new highs every week. And I was talking about how just like, I don't care what you think the potential business opportunity for Tesla is. I just can't see how you can justify the, the, the massive uh, jump the stock had had over you know, that, that recent year. And the guy said, well, look, I can explain to you a big part of it. He said, you know, I run a fund that's X billion dollars. I can't remember exactly how much it was. And he said, you know, over the past two years, I have been given ESG mandates where I have to invest a certain percent of my portfolio in ESG companies. And he says, I'll tell you, the problem is, is there just aren't that many of them. And so when it comes down to like my quarterly deadlines and I still have this money I haven't spent, I've got to find a companies to be able to put it in and be companies that the market cap is big enough that it can absorb what I have. And he's like, there really aren't that many other choices besides Tesla. So I find myself putting gobs of you know, millions and tens of millions of dollars into Tesla quarter after quarter, not because I want to, but because I'm paid on whether I hit my ESG mandates or not. And I've got this artificial number I have to hit. And this is basically the only stock that can absorb the money I have. Right. So you multiply his firm by a ton of others out there yeah. and you just get this misallocation of capital. Right. And, and you know, we talk about the evils of malinvestment and whatnot. And, and even even something that's as noble sounding as, oh, we all want a cleaner environment. Right. So we'll come up with some of these ESG goals. It starts wildly distorting the system um, and nothing good you know, ever comes of that. And I haven't looked at Tesla recently, but. I'm absolutely certain the losses this guy has taken on Tesla over the past year have been gargantuan, just measured in millions. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because I said back in 2021, I said that when the tide turns, and it will, and this is when nobody wanted to own energy stocks, right? Because they weren't ESG friendly. Um, you know, I said, ESG is going to go out the window. People are going to buy what's going up in price. And, and you know, that's exactly what's happened. All, you know, all those ESG funds have now had big outflows of capital. And energy funds have had big inflows of capital. So all these people that were virtue signaling, you know, their investments, oh, I want to invest in companies that are making the world a better place are now all chasing energy companies because that's where money's being made. Same thing we saw back in the late 90s with sin stocks, right? Don't buy pornography, alcohol, cigarettes. When those became the best performing assets, 
everybody stuck their money back into those companies. Right. Well, and as we close here, this is more or less the point I was making, you know, 15, 20 minutes ago or so in here, where I think we are in, we are entering an era where a lot of our, um, what do you want to call them, our, our, our more uh, noble, but, but um, you know, our, our more noble intentions, whatever you call it, or, or, or the things that we want to have begin to get really limited by the harsh reality of just what we can afford. And you're going to see, I think, a continued shift of exactly what you're talking about there, Lance, which is, yes, we were all talking about social responsibility and ESG and all that type of stuff. But now we're more of an existential fight of like, we just have to stay afloat and alive. And so, yeah, kind of forget about a lot of what we were saying earlier. And it's, it's you know, we're going to have fewer options and the rules are going to be harder. And if you don't want to line up behind the rules, well, then there's the door, right? It's going to be just a very different world for a lot of people who have gotten lulled into this sense of like, we have a lot more opportunity and, and protections and everything that we had before. Um, and I'm not saying I'm rooting for this, folks. I'm just saying I see that this is likely to be coming, at least to a certain degree. And the the more we can position ourselves in front of this and not be victims to it is better. And I see you smiling and nodding. Yeah. Well, just to sum this up real quick, we can close out on this as this comment. And this is what I've told people before. And I just want to reiterate this one point is, you know, I get a lot of a lot of calls, you know, uh, from this show and everything else that we do. And people go, well, you know, I think this is going to happen, right? I, you know, I'm invested you know, all in gold and silver, and that's all I own because I think the world's coming to an end, whatever it is, right? Just you, you um, the problem with those theses are, again, like I said earlier, is that things change, right? The world changes and, and these type of things. You know, if you want to invest to make the world a better place, I am all for that. Just don't do it with your portfolio because you buying Tesla does not make the world a better place. All you did was buy shares from Adam because he was selling them and you bought them. That exchange between shareholders, Tesla doesn't even know that, that you those shares have been bought and sold. They're all what we call in street names. So we don't even know who owns those shares. We're just all trading them every day. Um, but it makes no difference to the environment. Actually, it, it's worse for the environment because electricity used to trade those shares. Right? <laughs> um, but so if you want to invest, you know, to make the world a better place, go find somebody that's starting a business that is going to recycle something or, you know, right, is going to create carbon new, or yeah. whatever. Yeah. But go invest in a private company. Go help him change the world. Be part of that because that makes a difference. If you can't find that, go plant a tree because that makes a difference to the economy uh, or, or to the environment. But when it comes to your money, the only thing that matters is what's going up and what's going down. Don't get too wrapped up in big macro theses because things change more often than not. You're going to be wrong about your macro thesis. I see it happen every single day with people. Um, and been doing this for 35 years. And this 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 is not different this time. This is the same as we saw in 99, same we saw in 2007, same thing we saw prior to 87. You know, these, these times are not different. So focus on where money's being made, how you can do it with the least amount of risk, make a return on your investment. Don't worry about some virtue signaling thesis that you've got to follow it has no bearing on your outcome. Your job as an investor is to make money for you and your family. Nothing else matters. Leave all that other stuff at the door. It's great dinner conversation. 
have it over dinner, go plant a tree for the for the environment, but make money with your money. That's the, that's the important thing. All right, well, we're going to leave it there. And folks, next week, we will address the, um, I think, more fun and uplifting topic of the importance of self-understanding. Um, last week, Lance, you may remember, um, I talked about how my daughter was yeah. about to go take that that, that, that uh, aptitudes test, the Johnson-O'Connor aptitudes test. She did. We got the results. Um, super useful. I'll kind of summarize the experience for folks and a few more things we'll talk about here. But but I, I'm not a lot of folks were interested that we were going to talk about it and yep. probably disappointing a few that we didn't get into it this week. But folks, we'll get into it next time. Um, in the interim, um, this is the uh, the week before Thanksgiving. So um, folks, have a wonderful Thanksgiving yourselves directly. Um, if you um, want some help with a, a financial advisor with all of the, the the main issues, themes, and concerns that Lance and I mentioned uh, in, in this uh, whole video here, um, obviously you have a good one already, stick with them. But if you don't, or if you want a second opinion on one that does take all these things in consideration, maybe even Lance and his team at, at Real Investment Advisors themselves, just go to Wealthion.com, fill out the short form there. You can have a free consultation with them. It doesn't cost you anything. There's no commitment to work with them. It's just a public service that they offer. Um, and as usual, folks, um, if you enjoy these uh, weekly market recaps and haven't gotten sick and tired of them so far this year or in this long, still 100 uh, hour and 45 minute uh, uh, one that we managed to squeak out today, I did try to keep it less. We got, we're under last week's record level but we're still going along <laughs> still so apologies folks but if you enjoy them and want to see more of them going forward please do us a favor support this channel by hitting the like button and then clicking on the red subscribe button below as well as that little bell icon right next to it and lance thanks so much for joining us again buddy whatever happens in the next week we'll be back here making sense of it for folks everybody else thanks so much for watching